When we share someone's story here on The Diaries, the episode might end, but their story doesn't. So many of the people we've talked to, they've gone on to do incredible things. They have epic adventures and make significant impacts in our community. Over on Diaries Plus, we're catching up with some of our former guests to see what they've been up to. I recently sat down with Connor Ryan, a Lakota professional skier from our Sacred Slopes episode, who's been knocking out groundbreaking projects ever since the episode aired. It's really incredible. We had a great discussion about the impacts he's made, what keeps his fire burning, and taking ski lessons as a pro skier. Here's a snippet of the conversation. All the source of joy that I use to fill my cup to be out in the world doing positive things comes from my relationship to the outdoors. And so I really focused on like, wow, like there's so much power if I can give one person the relationship to the outdoors that that I have through skiing. And maybe that will have as profound of an effect on them as it's had on me. To listen to the full episode, use the link in the show notes to subscribe to Diaries Plus today. Yeah, you get more shows, but you also have a peace of mind of powering what's out there right now, keeping us moving forward, keeping this community together. So thank you for everyone who supported and everyone who's going to support. We appreciate it. Hey, Cordelia. Hey, Fitz. How's it going? It's good. I have totally blown off work, and instead of being in the studio, I'm in a cabin on a lake <laughs> with my kids. So there's some noise in the background. I apologize. Sounds rough. Uh, it is, because whew, it's not rough at all. It's actually <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, it's so school's about to start or not start, so I figured we'd get bookish for a second. Okay, ready? Random question. Did you ever study Latin, Cordelia? Oh, uh, heck no. I took Spanish because you can actually use it. But that said, a bunch of my friends did take Latin, and I think it was actually really useful because you can use it to figure out the roots of all the words in a lot, well, I guess most of the Romance languages. So I think it's actually kind of a cool language. Do you have a favorite word from Spanish? Ooh, I always really liked the word murciélago. That means bat or crepúsculo, which is like dusk. I just think they're, I think all of Spanish is very beautiful, but those ones in particular, I always thought were really pretty. How about you? Creer, to believe. At first, when I was learning Spanish, I had a really tough time distinguishing it from crear, which is to create. I know my pronunciation is terrible. I was never really good at it. But for some reason, those two words always stuck with me because... I would get them wrong in the beginning and I had to work my mind to correct that. And so creer and crear, they're so close because they come from the same Latin building blocks. Creo, Latin for create, which in the Latin context is even deeper, which is to make grow, and credo for believe. And I like how close those two words are, belief, creation which when you think about it is such a chicken and egg thing in this like never ending cyclical spiral when you think about it through the lens of creativity. You know, a lot of you out there, you know that this podcast is created by this small creative company called Duct Tape and Beer. You know, I think we're known for our films. We do a lot of other things like create environmental campaigns and help companies get better at finding and working towards values. But it's it's funny because we've been doing it for 10 years and, and I think 
a lot of people don't really know what we do and we even have a tough time talking about it because it's kind of this amorphous thing and i've been thinking about it about our company a lot and i've been thinking about those two words creo create and credo believe because i think that they're at the root of what our company does we create so that we can believe so that others can believe that we are connected that we have agency to find joy in a troubled world to make impact on a troubled world and that we aren't just some data points on a spreadsheet i've seen the power of what happens when a small team begins to believe in its potential and its shared work and in the people that we create for and and that feeling is why i do my job if you could even call it that because it doesn't really feel like a job it feels like magic when it's working right now and I really want to put this in context because we are not frontline workers. We haven't lost loved ones like other people we know to this pandemic. And in the long run, this is small potato stuff. But right now, you know, the economic fallout of the pandemic, it's impacting tons of us. It's taking its toll financially, um, creatively, emotionally. And it feels like we are in this little, very well-built boat in the middle of a storm and we're lined up on these waves and we've got a course and if we can just last till dawn we might make it through intact and at this stage of the journey it you know I, I can tell it feels dark like we've been working hard the adrenaline's worn off and we're looking hoping for that thin sliver of light out on the horizon and we are tired of being attacked by zoom calls and text threads it's hard to create together in that setting month in and month out and I feel like it's harder to know why we believe in ourselves. It hasn't been that way in the past. And it, it sucks. Again, it's not like losing a loved one bad or weighing safety versus financial security bad. But it feels like we've lost something. And I imagine a lot of people are going through the same thing. So I come back to those words like credo, creo, that root, that deep, taproot of belief creativity brings us and i want that back this question it keeps like ping-ponging around in my head how do i believe in the ship how do i help others around me believe in what we're all doing together and and i've been struggling with it and i get this sense of resignation i'm coming up with all these complex solutions and it kind of hit me maybe the answer is is simpler the answer is to create and not just create, but create together. And that is the path towards shared belief. Credo, creo, they go together. Changing the subject, what do you know about yacht clubs, Fitz? Very little, but more than I need to know, I would say. I just, uh, I'm not necessarily a yacht club kind of guy. Well. Clearly, you don't know about all of the yacht clubs out there because today we're going to hear a story about a very special kind of yacht club. In this club, sharing a belief takes them a long way. And I think it might be exactly the story that you and I and all of us need to hear right now. And trust me, it's pretty dang dirtbag. Okay, I'm excited. I'm Fitzgerald. Hall. I'm Cordelia Zars. You're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries.
Bailey is like boating hell. There is no water around us at all. We're just in the mountains. It's totally beautiful, but you would not think boating at all when you think of Platte Canyon High School. This is Steve Hanford. He teaches science at Platte Canyon High School in Bailey, Colorado, a small town 50 miles southwest of Denver in the heart of the Rocky Mountains. It's the only high school in town, and it has about 250 students. The school itself nests between Highway 285 and the steep granite walls of Platte Canyon, a winding ravine leading up to Kenosha Pass. Ponderosas cling to the dry soil, and their branches graze the second-story windows. A small creek runs along the highway, but apart from that, the land feels pretty parched. It's the kind of place you might see a mountain lion during lunch break. The kids here are, there's like a, a lot of representation in the gun and hook crowd. And so you got people that go elk hunting, they like to go fishing. This is Mr. Hanford's colleague, Kip Audison, who teaches history, business, and construction at the high school. The kids here are rural. So if you say yacht, it almost like, you know, rubs in the wrong way immediately. Which is why, on the second floor of this Colorado high school, you might be surprised to find a classroom filled entirely with boat building supplies, maps of the ocean, and a giant sign tacked to the wall that reads, No one outside this room believes we will succeed. It might sound far-fetched, but you've just stumbled into the headquarters of the Platte Canyon High School Yacht Club. The very beginning of this whole project started in a meeting and we were just shooting the breeze and I was talking about my brother having a midlife crisis and I was like, yeah, he wants to buy a boat and move to Costa Rica. And then Kip said, you don't have to buy a boat. There are plenty of free boats out there. And the school counselor goes, I have a boat he can have. And so the next thing I know, Kip's going, hey, if your brother gets a boat, we could do the race to Alaska. Okay, so let's back up a little. Mr. Hanford and Mr. Audison, they both have a lot of boating experience. Mr. Hanford spent 10 years raft guiding in Colorado before he became a teacher. And Mr. Audison grew up in California, surfing and then later sailing and working on fishing boats in Alaska. Mr. Audison knew about this race, the race to Alaska, which is a competition for non-motorized boats from Port Townsend, Washington to Ketchikan, Alaska. We even did a story on the first person to do it on a paddleboard a few years ago. It's 750 miles through some of the most gnarly and beautiful sections along the Pacific coast. It's North America's longest human and wind-powered race. Mr. Audison had dreamed of doing this race for a while, and now his colleague, Mr. Hanford, seemed like the perfect teammate. Kip presents this idea to me, and it just seemed like an adventure, and I'm always up for an adventure. And so then I started diving into it and got really excited. But it was a big commitment. The race involved a decent amount of risk. They'd be boating, unsupported, through a section of ocean known for its nasty squalls, strong tidal currents, and whales. They'd have to leave their families in Colorado and be in Alaska for at least a few weeks. Mr. Hanford and Mr. Audison set their sights on another race, a shorter race, so they wouldn't be gone for as long. It's organized by the same people as Race to Alaska. It's called 7048, and is pretty much how it sounds, 70 miles in 48 hours. It's a point-to-point in Washington state, starting in Tacoma and ending in Port Townsend. 
It's human power only, so only boats like kayaks, stand-up paddleboards, and rowboats. No sailboats. The idea to race 7048 took seed in September 2018. The race was set for the last day of May the following year. Mr. Hanford and Mr. Otteson had a full seven months before the race, so they thought, maybe we'll build our own boat for the race. They're both pretty handy. And then, because Mr. Otteson teaches construction at the high school, it dawned on him that maybe they could get the students involved, too. And Kip was like, I really want to build boats with the students. And I was like, I really want to do 7048. <laughs> and so we just put those two ideas together. And we're like, we'll take the students, we'll build a boat, and then we'll do 7048. Mr. Otteson emailed the race director to see if he could sign a bunch of high school students up for the event. The director gave an immediate thumbs up. I think I was in calculus class and Mr. Otteson came in to just like bother us every day. And one day he came in, he was like, hey, uh, you're gonna paddle 70 miles with us straight in a boat that we're gonna build. And I was like, uh, I'm not sure about that, Mr. Otteson. <laughs> but he was like, yep, we're gonna do it. And that's, that's when I first heard about it. That's Sydney Mimoser, and she was a junior at Platte Canyon High School in 2018. Here's Mr. Hanford again. I think we pitched it to the kids in October. We had a lunch meeting, and we handpicked like 25 kids, and we invited them to my room for lunch, and then pitched the idea. And some of them were like, you're crazy, and just walked out. And then the crazy ones who stayed was like, this is our team. Mr. Audison and Mr. Hanford told the students who stayed, it's pretty simple. We build a boat, stitch and glue plywood and wire, nothing too technical. We sign up for the race, and that's it. Here's a student named Kai Audison. He was in that first October meeting and a sophomore at the time. He's also Mr. Audison's son. It was surprising to be hearing about, okay, yeah, we're going to just take a whole bunch of students in this boat that we haven't <laughs> built, and we're going to paddle 70 miles in 48 hours or less. It was a bit of a shock. Here's Sydney again. We had never built a boat before. I've never built anything really besides a shelf and a birdhouse, so <laughs> it was like definitely a little bit crazy. And this is Amy Bazant, a sophomore at the time. I didn't think that we were going to actually be able to build a boat or row 70 miles in 48 hours. Like, it was not <laughs> plausible in my head. Mr. Audison assured them that the building process wouldn't be that hard. And as for the race... 70 miles, 48 hours, what's the speed we have to go? And I was kind of walking around the room like, at this speed, we could finish, right? At this like snail's pace. And they were thinking, we could do that. But then the whole, you know, all the, the nitty gritty started coming out. Where are we going to go to the bathroom? If it's two days, I'm going to have to go to the bathroom. What are we going to eat? What if it gets dark? You know, it will get dark. You know, all of the questions started coming out. Out of the 25 students in that first meeting, 12 of them said, no, thank you. This sounds nuts. But the other 13, they were intrigued. They spanned the grades from freshman to senior and were a mix of boys and girls. They had enough respect for their teachers to know that, as far-flung as their ideas might seem, they were actually serious about it. Yes, they lived in a landlocked state. Many of the students had never even seen the ocean before, much less built a boat to paddle on it. But they knew the tenacity of their teachers' personalities well enough to figure 
there was a chance this could actually happen. What would it take? Well, they wanted to find out. Whispers circulated through the school hallways, and among those 13 students, a giddy fervor began to grow. They met after school and began developing their plans, and put together a few workbenches in Mr. Hanford's lab classroom to prepare for the build. As a joke, Mr. Hanford, Mr. Audison, and the 13 students started calling themselves the Platte Canyon High School Yacht Club. And some people were like saying, you don't have yachts up there. Like, well, no, you know, no, duh. <laughs> That's the joke, man. After the initial recruitment meeting, Mr. Hanford and Mr. Audison gathered the parents whose kids would be on the team. They told them the plan, to build a boat and race it in Washington the following spring. Then they pitched their idea to the school administration. We definitely had awesome support from the parents and from our administration. And there were, there were definitely some safety concerns, but for the most part, I think people just didn't really understand what we were doing. <laughs> and so they weren't as worried about it as maybe they would have been. Like, I know there's a school in Chimicum, which is by Port Townsend, who really wants to do the race with students, and their district was like, no way. You, you can't do it. There's too many issues. And so we were able to overcome some of those because people just aren't on the water all the time. And, and we're like, okay, sounds good. Wear your life jacket. <laughs> <laughs> the Bailey School District was a tougher sell. When Mr. Hanford and Mr. Audison brought up the race with the district lawyer, she said, no, no way. Too many liability issues. What if a kid drowns or gets clobbered by a paddle? We'll all get sued. Mr. Audison replied, well, we're doing this race, so I guess I'll personally assume all liability and the parents can sue me if something happens. The district lawyer choked a little at that, gave them a bunch of waivers for the parents to sign, and sent them on their merry way. A lot of parents and administration got on board just because the thought of a bunch of mountain kids building a boat and racing it was kind of hilarious. Fewer people actually believed it would happen, like the school principal and superintendent, Mike Schmidt. He'll deny it, but we really think that after we told him we were going to build boats and do this race, he thought it wouldn't happen. And he was just kind of like, okay, (laughs) this will fizzle out and go away. I don't have to worry about it. They got that attitude a lot. Interest, but incredulity. Like when they applied for a local grant that helps fund school projects related to the outdoors. We thought, of course we're going to get the money. You know, why wouldn't we get the money? We knew every single person on that committee. All the people deciding whether or not you get the grant are friends of ours. So we thought, definitely, we're getting that money. And then we find out that they were debating whether or not we'd actually pull it off. And they kind of hesitated to give us the money. And so through that, that really fired me up. That's when the sign went up. No one outside this room believes we'll succeed. And just like that, they had a mission. Prove them wrong.
then the administration started coming up because they're hearing a lot of sawing and they're hearing, oh, they're probably smelling dust. And there's like, you know, the smell of epoxy. What's going on in this room? By Christmas break, a lot had happened. The Yacht Club got the local grant for $2,500. They posted on social media and started a GoFundMe page and raised $18,000. Mr. Hanford and Mr. Audison ordered design plans for a 40-foot dragon boat, which is a 40-foot canoe, and then they tweaked the design so that it could fit 13 students and five adult supervisors. The idea was that they'd build double outriggers on either side of the canoe, turning it into what's called a trimaran. So think three canoes, the longest one in the middle, and two shorter ones on either side, all attached together by wooden planks. Mr. Audison and Mr. Hanford converted a STEM lab into a workshop, brought in tools, and purchased plywood, epoxy, and wire. The race hovered on the horizon in late May 2019. Mr. Audison and Mr. Hanford wanted to have the boat finished by March so that they could find a place to test it in the water. So when the students got back to school after Christmas break, it was go time. We told the kids, all hands on deck, you know, no pun intended, we have to get this thing done. And so we started building really quickly. Here are the students again, Kai, Sydney, and Amy. We decided to save a whole lot of money by not buying marine plywood. <laughs> and we just bought, I think it was AC. Yeah. yeah. Just regular, regular plywood. construction plywood from the hardware store. <laughs> and so it worked pretty well. The building process included cutting out shapes from the plywood, stitching them together with wire, and then fiberglassing it once the shape was set. So it's a very easy process. So it basically takes boat building and takes it out of the lair of the bearded pipe smoking guy and brings it to everybody, which I think probably is disconcerting to snobs. But it worked very well for the kids. The students in the Yacht Club came in during their free periods, lunch break and after school. Most students spent a couple of hours working on the boat each day. What was the hardest part of boat building? Not um, wanting to kill the other people. Fiberglassing the inside. <laughs> Fiberglassing the inside yeah, was true. terrible. Because I, I don't think we ever figured out a good way to no, do that. There's because no good way to do if it. You put, if you paint epoxy onto the inside of the hole and then lay the fiberglass into it, it gets stuck and it just is a mess. But if you do it the opposite way, it also turns out to be a mess. <laughs> the bow and sterns of all three canoes were identical. The first one, we all figured out together, and Kip and I helped a lot. And then after that, it's like, okay, you guys know how to do it. Go nuts. The students learned a lot by trial and error. Didn't we, like, drill a hole in the whole boat? Through the whole the side of the boat? <laughs> yeah. We did that. And what else did we um, do? Probably, like, wasting epoxy, because we got, we like, huge so puddles of epoxy on the floor just from people, like, slapping it on the boat and then just letting it drip off the side. But despite some setbacks, the students and their teachers made steady progress. The outlandish triple-hole design started taking shape. We had to put it together somewhere. And so we came out in the hallway and we're like, all right, how much room do we have? We sat down in the boat, had paddles, and said, do we have room to paddle on each side? And are we interfering with each other? Um, we had the kids sitting in the boat. If the kids weren't here, we had the custodian in the boat. We had to figure out you know, how much room we had and how big this thing was going to be. In the Rocky Mountains, it would be winter until April. All the lakes and rivers would stay frozen up until a few weeks before the race. 
But Mr. Audison and Mr. Hanford were anxious to test the boat on water and to teach the students how to paddle, so they planned a spring break trip to California in March. They'd use Mr. Hanford's truck, get a trailer, and haul the trimaran all the way to Dana Point, a coastal town just south of Los Angeles. As the trip approached, Mr. Hanford, Mr. Audison, and the students hustled to finish construction. It was a scramble. It was a big-time scramble. And there were lots of people who were just like, well, what are you going to do if the boat's not ready for spring break? And Kip and I just kept saying, no choice. The boat will will be be ready. ready. Long afternoons of sanding and fiberglassing spilled into the weekends. Mr. Hanford and Mr. Audison went to pick up a cargo trailer that someone donated, only to realize it was too short for the trimaran. We got to cut a section out of the front of it. We got to build a box so that the boat can stick out. It was like this massive thing coming out of the small trailer, like a clown car or something, but it just worked out. On March 20th, they loaded the trimaran into the trailer. Mr. Hanford drove the truck, and Mr. Audison piled the yacht club students, six parents, and one other teacher into a district suburban. They drove together through a full wideout on Hoosier Pass west to California. A few days later, they pulled into a group campsite at Doheny State Beach near Dana Point and unloaded the boat and their gear. The next day, after they'd gotten some food and rest, it was time to test their behemoth in the waves. Launching the boat for the first time, that was a really powerful moment. That was so cool. And so cool. And it was just so emotional for us just to be there and have it done and be like, we'd made it. They pushed the boat into the water, and the students took some tentative paddle strokes out to sea. We had a whole section to ourselves in the back, so we would be talking the whole time like, dude, we're doing it. Dude, we're here. We're in the ocean, man. Like, lick your hand. It's salty. You know, this is, we're making this happen. It's going right now. Look, we're going pretty fast. Our boat is a total dirtbag boat. It's not beautiful. And that's because, you know, we don't have thousands and thousands of dollars to pour into that thing to make it beautiful. But it works. And the kids made it. Excitement grew the further they paddled from the coast. The students coordinated their strokes and picked up speed as the waves billowed and slapped over their bows. The ocean sprayed in their faces. Laughing, the students from Colorado broke out in a chorus of songs from Moana. We had a whale surface in front of us, and I was like, I couldn't even get the words out that there's a whale right there. And some of them saw it, and everyone freaked out, like, there's a whale? Oh, my God, you know? And then we saw a big, uh, like a herring ball, so a bunch of birds, like, around this one area where there's a herring, herring ball in the water. And I said, let's go into the ball over there because there'll be porpoises. And so we go there. And, of course, there's porpoises. And we start paddling, and they're riding, swimming along with us. We're playing Bohemian Rhapsody on the speaker, and we got these porpoises. And I'm just like, this is the best time of my life. Porpoises right on the bow. Incredible. 
For the rest of their week in California, Mr. Hanford, Mr. Audison, and the students went for long paddles during the day and camped on the beach at night. They laughed a lot, played games, didn't shower for a week. The students felt their arms grow stronger and their rhythms synchronize on the boat. One day, they paddled 26 miles in a morning, which made all of them feel confident they could finish 70-48 in good time. They knew they had the distance and the endurance. The one question mark that lingered was whether they had what it took to paddle through the night. The countdown to the race begins with a night on the water. That's coming up after a break. Stay with us. Support for the Diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer runs and bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend, I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. Ketones already exist in your body. When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. Riders of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking. Give it a try. You save 30% off your first subscription order at ketone.com backslash dirtbag diaries. Once again, that's ketone.com backslash dirtbag diaries. The link is in the show notes. Please check it out. Back in Colorado, the sound of melting snow pattered through the classroom windows as the students put finishing touches on their boat. In the weeks following their trip to California, they customized their seats and painted stripes the colors of the Colorado flag down the sides of the boat. One student freehanded a line drawing of the mountains on the outrigger holes. Determined to prove the critics wrong, the yacht club decided to name their boat something that would represent their mission. They stenciled on the center hole in bright red, all caps, the word credimus. Which we think is Latin for we believe. At least Google tells us that's what it means. It could mean something really inappropriate. We don't know. In one of the final preparations for the race, Mr. Hanford and Mr. Audison planned an overnight training mission on Horsetooth Reservoir outside of Fort Collins in early May. Here are Sydney and Amy again. We got there and put our boat together and everything seemed pretty good until it was like the middle of the night and Amy oh behind me was literally I, crying. Oh my gosh, it was so <laughs> bad. And our boat was frozen. The whole side of it was just ice and like... Our hands were absolutely, I thought I was going to drop my paddle and I thought I was going to fall asleep because we went to school the whole day, you know, got up early, went to school, packed all our stuff and then left for this trip. It was just absolutely crazy, so cold. It was the longest the students had paddled, 42 miles through the night. They started at 8 p.m. in the dark. Here's Kai. I just like started seeing like stuff run in front of walls, kind (laughs) of like, I guess it kind of looked like wolves almost but like (laughs) super long legs just like just creepy stuff we were out there on the water so i didn't feel scared of it at all but i definitely saw stuff and i was thinking to myself that's curious (laughs) i've never that was the first time i'd hallucinated from lack of sleep (laughs) 
The students all remember that night as being pretty hellish, paddling half asleep and losing feeling in their hands and feet from the unrelenting Colorado cold. But they celebrated as they watched the sun nudge over the eastern plain. Yeah, and that was a moment where it was like, oh man, we've got this, right? We just paddled through the night. And we're like, we did 42 miles. We can do this. May 31st, 2019. 13 students from the Platte Canyon Yacht Club, three of their teachers, and two parents lined up in their boat, Credimus, at the start of 7048. They were one out of 108 boats in the race, and the next largest crew had six people, compared to their 18. Nerves and excitement spread through the boat. They had 48 hours to paddle from Tacoma to Port Townsend through the Puget Sound. Along the way, they'd have to pass by two waypoints, which were boats anchored at designated locations along the route, so that the race directors could keep track of all the boats and make sure that everyone was safe. And I'm thinking, as soon as they fire the gun, we're going to go and we can't stop the kids because they can't hear There's so many people and we have so much mass and inertia. We're just going to run over people like a Rome plow, just going right through the crowd. And that's kind of what happened. p.m. The start gun fired. 108 boats charged forward through the water. Crowds cheered on the bank. Feeling the kick of adrenaline, the students lurched forward and Credimus parted the sea of boats ahead of them. But we did hold back a little bit when we ran over that English guy. Because there was a guy in a rowboat right in front of us. And I'm just like, go! And he got his oar stuck under us, and we just T-boned him. And he turns to the girls in the front and is like, you're running me over. (laughs) You know, and so we're like yelling, stop, stop! (laughs) But there's 18 people just going all out. Eventually, they managed to get off the British guy's boat. They paddled steadily ahead and made good time through Commencement Bay, framed against a snowy Mount Rainier towering in the background. They found their first waypoint, got the green light to continue north, and headed through Colvos Passage as the sun set. Mr. Audison and Mr. Hanford switched off navigating and steering from the back. Every 30 paddle strokes, Mr. Hanford's wife, Melody, who paddled in the starboard outrigger, would call, Hike! The rest of the team would respond, ho, and they'd all switch sides. The last of the light drained from the sky, and night settled in around the boat. They planned to only stop once, so they developed a brake system so students could snack and rest along the way. One of the kids had an alarm set. Every 20 minutes, he'd yell, break, and then the first person in each section would stop and take a break and get something to eat, adjust their layers, get a drink, and then start paddling again, and the next person would start. And so it just kind of roll back. Every three hours, two people at a time would get a full 20 minutes to rest. And we thought, 
that people would kind of eat more and get a longer break, but almost to the T, everyone just curled up in a ball and went to sleep. Right in the bottom of the boat. After a break on Blake Island at midnight, which was around the 28-mile mark on the race course, the students loaded back into the boat and grabbed their paddles for the next push north. Everyone started feeling pretty wiped. Also, the tide had switched. Now, instead of paddling with the current, they had to paddle against it. They crawled past Bainbridge Island and passed a nub on the coast called Point No Point. The sun began to rise and illuminated a dense layer of fog. After Point No Point, they had to navigate through the fog through a passage called The Cut, which is a narrow gap between Indian Island and the Olympic Peninsula. Mr. Hanford and Mr. Audison used an app during the race to track the tides. They knew that if they didn't hit the cut before the tide switched, they'd be paddling against a river of current in the opposite direction. At that point, we were telling the kids, we got to make the cut by this time or the current's going to switch on us. And this was either like our best coaching moment or really a low point, depending on who you talk to. We said, no more breaks. We're paddling straight across this thing as fast as we can so we can make it to the cut. And we're like, there's no chance we're going to make it to the cut. The students gave it their all to make it through the narrow channel before the tide changed. But even with everyone paddling their hardest, they didn't make it in time. And the kids worked so hard, so hard. to get to the cut, and the current was, it was a four-knot current in our face, just, you know, so much that you couldn't paddle against it. But if you got right up against the shore, you could get in the eddies and still make progress through. And so they were a little disgruntled when we got to the cut and realized <laughs> I worked my tail off for a lie for a lie <laughs> I thought my arms were gonna fall off <laughs> it was so exhausting that was when I was finally just completely drained mm-hmm. and that was the point where I started consciously pulling my paddle off setting it on the gunnels so yeah. I could fall asleep the students lost their steam. As the sun rose higher into the sky, they started getting passed by boats, people they'd stayed ahead of the whole race until now. Their paddle strokes became clunky and uncoordinated. Credimus lurched haltingly forward as the students took turns dozing in their seats. And then there's a ferry coming. And we had told the kids, like, hey, if there's a ferry coming, we're going to yell, haul balls. And you got to give it everything you've got. Otherwise, we're going to get run over by a ferry. And so this ferry's coming right before the finish. It's the Port Townsend Ferry. And so we yell haul balls. And we sprinted all the way into the finish line. The adrenaline just got them. And we almost didn't stop. And then the cheering started on the dock. And it's just full of people on the dock. You could hear, ah. It was just packed, and they were just cheering and yelling, and we were just sprinting to the finish line, and I'm just yelling as loud as I can for them to hold water, which is our command to stop. I think I cried a little. I definitely cried. (laughs) I got my sunglasses on. It's like crying. He's crying. Everyone's just, you know, the kids, I don't know if they're crying. I was. I think every adult was. You know, and not from like the exertion, just like the feeling of accomplishment. Like we did it, we completed this thing, this crazy you know, idea we had came to fruition, the kids kicked butt, 
and we have all the support waiting for us on the dock and parents are there. My buddy that was taking all these pictures, you know, he's there with the 24 donuts waiting for us. You know, it was all coming together and it was overwhelming. The Platte Canyon High School Yacht Club crossed the finish line at 1.41 p.m. on June 1st, 70 miles in 18 and a half hours. Some of the students fell over when they got out of the boat, but they were psyched. They did it. They built a boat, raced it 70 miles through the night, and placed 23rd overall. The kids were celebrities. They would see the Platte Canyon Yacht Club shirt and people would grab them and just want to talk to them. And so the kids, they couldn't go anywhere without somebody grabbing them and asking them about the boat. We literally like had people come up to us and be like, oh my gosh, you were on that boat. Like, you're yeah, so even, cool. Even in the bathroom. Like, like even we went to the bathroom. We literally went to the bathroom and there were people and they were like, oh my gosh, were you on that boat? And we're like, uh, yeah, that's so cool. Like, we're so jealous of you. Like, we wish we could have done that and all this stuff. And it was, it was just a cool experience. Mm -hmm. Just being recognized for something that you've done. In the time between the first recruitment meeting and the race, it would have been easy for all of them, Mr. Audison, Mr. Hanford, the students, to stack up all the odds against them and laugh the idea off as ridiculous. Over the course of those seven months of building, fundraising, and training, they had so many opportunities to quit. When the district said the liability was too great, when the students drilled a hole through the canoe, or when the boat didn't fit in the trailer, when their hands went numb on Horsetooth Reservoir. But instead, those moments fueled them. When no one outside that room believed they would succeed, they believed. Turns out, believing in themselves went a long way. Here's Sydney. At the beginning, this seemed impossible, you know? And I was like, physically, I don't think that I can paddle for 70 miles straight. I realized, you know, if I set my mind to something and I motivate myself, then I really can do whatever I put my mind to. Here's Amy. Maybe there are things that I can do that I don't think I can. We're not just like something that we think that we can do. It's a whole lot more than that. And here's Kai. I think it was just cool to show people that these mountain kids can build a boat and make it through this race, place 23rd, just kind of out of nowhere, in a landlocked state, and not do too bad. And as for their teachers? It was like the Mount Everest of teaching for me. It was like, this is about as good as it gets. I can't imagine a much better project for us to do than this one. Exposing the kids to something so radically different than they were used to and setting the, the expectations so high and also having the kids build the boat and do it like every bit of it was what I like and I value. I think for those kids, they walked away just, just feeling like they could do whatever, whatever they wanted to. And I'm just so proud, you know, so proud that we did that and to be a part of that. I mean, it was 
this gargantuan effort, time and, and money that we just poured into this, it, it's hard to imagine being at that level again. Even doing the race again, and, and even like winning it, won't feel as much of an accomplishment as that first year. Well, I don't know, we haven't won, <laughs> so maybe it will. <laughs> The 2020-7048 race was canceled due to coronavirus. But for 2021, the Platte Canyon Yacht Club has their eyes on the prize. This coming year, we would like to do a pedal drive system because it'll give the boat a new flavor, teach the kids a new set of skills, and we could actually place higher. Our goal is to win this coming year. And people laugh at us, but I say, laugh away. Because if we can go nine knots, we're going to win. You heard right. A pedal boat, four paddle wheels, and room for 16 students in the boat. A canoe rests on the floor of the Yacht Club workshop, filled with bike frames and extra pedals. It seems like there's a long way to go between this mangled pile of bikes and the pedal boat they have in mind. Mr. Hanford starts laughing. <laughs> He's laughing. You gotta believe, Steve. You gotta believe. I, no, I believe. <laughs> All we have to do is go twice as fast. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Hanford, Mr. Audison, Sydney, Kai, and Amy for sharing your story. Make sure you check out Platte Canyon High School Yacht Club on Instagram so you can follow their new boat, Street Credimus. That's awesome. <laughs> Street Credimus, I love it. In the 2021 race. Thanks also to Off Center Harbor for sending over some footage of the race for the story. Our stories come from friends and from friends of friends and from you, our community. If you have a compelling idea for a guest or a story lead, please give us a shout. You can use the submission form on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Music today from Cloud9, Bradley Carter, Ken Christensen, and Brennan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of the artists themselves or from Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artist at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Cordelia Zars and edited by Ashley Langholz and Becca Cajal. Illustration by Walker Call, graphics by Anya Miller, Becca Call is our executive producer. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. Mm-hmm.